Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, Congress must do list when it returns from the August recess, a best guess for the Fed's next step, and the latest on the state of the economy. Joining us to discuss all of this is, of course, Douglas Holtzakin. Doug, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Having a great August. How are you doing? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun August. I will, you know, we're starting to get into the slow part of August where everyone has left, but there's still some things going on out there. It doesn't feel slow. <laughs> it really yeah, yeah. No, it's supposed we're, to be, but it's it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, something about it. But let's let's jump in and talk about some of those things that are happening. So after passing both the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS bill earlier this month, Congress has finally left for the August recess. One of the must-do things when they return, though, in September is clearly to ensure that uh, the funding of the federal government into the next fiscal year. Wh- where do we stand in this process? At the moment, we have passed none of the appropriations bills. Uh, so uh, most likely when Congress comes back, they will cobble together a so-called continuing resolution, an extension of the the current funding patterns. Uh, the only real question is uh, how long a continuing resolution will that be? Will it be past the election, so they have to come back and do something in a lame duck? Uh, will it be past the New Year's, uh, which I think some Republicans would prefer, because if they take over the the House and or the Senate, at that, at that point they could put their imprimatur on the the sort of funding for the next fiscal year. So there will be uh, back and forth about sort of what length of CR, but basically they're going to have to do a CR so they can avoid shutting the government. And, and, you know, there's no sentiment out there that says shut the government. So that that's one they have to do. Uh, that's not the only one. They have some other things. Um, there's the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Uh, this is the, the bill that Congress always manages to get done. Um, and so it, it's uh, got to get through the, the, the process and get finished up. Uh, so that's on the must-do list. Uh, there's my personal favorite, the National Flood Insurance Program, which will uh, lose authorization at the end of September. Uh, very important that we we keep the flood insurance program going. Uh, and I'm calling on Taylor Swift right now to weigh in on and get this done. Um, you know, there, there are other things like that. The FCC's authority to auction spectrum expires. And so by the end of September, they have to, to get that done. Um, there's There's a a whole set of fees that are used to run the FDA for prescription drug um, uh, reviews and for medical device reviews. So there's PDUFA, MEDUFA, and a set of other things that need to get done. They're not yet over the finish line. So Congress has got this list of things they got to get done. And um, uh, that's going to take the bulk of their time. I, I don't really see room for anything else other than those. Yeah, interesting. Let's go through some of those things a little bit and a little bit more in depth. You mentioned the National Defense Authorization Act. They have to get this done. This is, of course, funding our defense strategy. What's going on with that? What are the top line things to know about about this? So so the top line thing to know is that this is the place where most of Congress gets to put its its uh, uh, fingerprints on the the structure of the defense uh, budget. And so uh, if you have a favored weapon system with a factory in your in your state, you care about this. Um, uh, there, there's also the appropriations, the defense appropriations, but but this is an important uh, part of of that. So um, you know, everyone's everyone's always made it a bipartisan 
goal to get it done. Uh, the Pentagon likes to have the certainty to, to run his operations. That, that's important. The CR would give the money inside of that. And the only real battle is what other things will end up on there because it has to pass. There's been a tradition of keeping the NDAA pretty clean. And so uh, if you've got a tradition of being pretty clean but not pristine, then, you know, there's always efforts to get one thing on to, to get carried by the NDA, and they're going through that process now. But I don't see any sentiment that says we don't want to get this done, you know, no big ro roadblocks, just got to work through the process, get it over the finish line. Yeah, it's, I mean, it always seems like it passes on bipartisan support. It's just like, when are they going to get to it kind of a thing? And I yeah. imagine that with world events being what they are, it would likely pass sometime pretty easily. Wrong year to not get it done, right? Sends yeah. all the messages. So it's going to get finished up. Another thing that Congress is going to do and probably or has to do um, is this this side deal that that they did to earn Senator Manchin's support for the IRA. Um, Senate Majority Leader Schumer promised a vote on reforms uh, to the federal energy permitting process. Um, what is in this agreement and what would it do? So this agreement is a handshake agreement between Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that Manchin will get a vote on his permitting reform bill in both the House and the Senate by the end of the fiscal year. So that's September 30th. The, the permitting reforms are really um, primarily aimed at the National Environmental Policy Act, which uh, gives environmental reviews of large-scale infrastructure projects. Um, it would... Uh, Put a timetable on that to shorten and guarantee reviews in two years, for example. They can often last seven years, things like that. So let's let's shorten this. Uh, let's um, uh, put, have a list of priority projects, 25 priority projects that we're going to you know, sort of expedite uh, and a variety of other ways to just make sure that the National Environmental Policy Act or Section 401 of the, the Clean Water Act, which allows um, basically, municipalities, states, uh, and localities, and, and tribes to to they have to sign off and say, yeah, this is not going to impact the water quality in my area, and they can they can take as long as they want to do that, so that slows things down, and they can use whatever criteria they, they want for that. Um, what does water quality mean there? And so, trying to sort of you know sharpen the process, limit the number of criteria they can use, get things done, and. I hear all sorts of different opinions on the likelihood of, of this getting done. Uh, I, I'm skeptical. I think this is a less than 50-50 proposition. Most of the things that uh, are in here were done by executive authority under uh, President Trump and then undone by executive authority under President Biden. Um, that suggests there's not a great appetite on the the Democratic side of the aisle for doing this. And last time I checked, they control both the House and the Senate. Do Republicans want to give them another victory prior to the election and thus provide all the votes necessary to pass this? I don't think so. So, yeah, they'll they might offer them a vote on a standalone. They might say, look, we'll put this on the CR. And then people say, I'm not going to vote for the CR. I'm going to shut the government. And they'll say, oh, we tried, pull it off. I don't know what the mechanics are going to end up being. But it strikes me that there just isn't the genuine willingness of both sides to come together to get this done. So yeah. um, he was promised to vote. He wasn't promised a victory. And he may not get one. <laughs> All right. So there's also uh, a narrow time frame for something you mentioned earlier, which is uh, the reauthorization for the FDA user fees. 
Um, Senator Burr has raised his objections uh, to major amendments that would overhaul the agency's regulatory authority. So what's what, what's really going on with this bill? Is this the usual gamesmanship? Are, we gonna, are they going to get this over the finish line? Um, so the the chair in the in the help committee in the Senate is Patty Murray from uh, Washington, and you know a leading progressive uh, uh, thinker in the in the Senate. And you know obviously she and Richard Burr are not going to agree on everything all the time. And same is true over in the House. But everyone has a track record of making sure the user fees get done so that you can run the FDA. Certainly in this day and age, you don't want the FDA to have to lay people off and, and not be able to uh, review drugs. So uh, what happens, the House uh, gets together, cuts a deal and says, here's, here's what we can both live with. And they pass the, all of the user fees out of the House. The Senate believes it has a deal um, and goes to mark up the user fee bills in the, in the help committee. And when amendments are offered and there's a deal, the usual thing that happens is the chairman and the ranking member unite to vote down anything that's not part of the deal and thus preserve the deal and out the bill comes. That didn't happen. Uh, there were some some real uh, what were thought out of left field uh, amendments offered and Murray, in fact, voted for some of them. And this produced a conflict. And so um, Burr offered a, a, another bill, which is a clean reauthorization. So if you want to uh, uh, start amending this thing, I'll give you the other extreme. We'll do nothing. We'll just re-up the, the thing. And, and the process stalled at that point. As I said at the outset, I don't think anyone believes that either Patty Murray or Richard Burr doesn't want the user fee bills to go through. So they're just at this point in a little bit of a, a Senate temper tantrum, fingers are being pointed at and, and blaming each other for the process. Again, I think time cures this and lack of time uh, produces urgency and they get it done. Um, that, that's, a, that's a forecast. I can't tell you how you would get from point A to point B. There are lots of routes. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, they will get it done. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like it's similar to the NDAA with everything going on in the world. It would seem a particularly bad time to stall, send the wrong message to stall this kind of a legislation. And it is a, 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 a long-standing Senate tradition that you only do something when you have to. Like either <laughs> the, the authorization lapses or you're about to go on recess. So that, that against if, if that if those kinds of deadlines aren't present, nothing happens in the Senate. All right, let's switch gears, sticking with the policy front, but from Congress to the administration, and on to one of your favorite subjects. President Biden on Tuesday announced the administration would cancel another. $3.9 billion in student loans. Which borrowers does this impact and which borrowers' loans do you see them forgiving next? So these are uh, loans to uh, students of ITT Tech, a now defunct um, uh, for-profit uh, training uh, operation. Uh, this this is a, a close follow-on to, to previous cancellations for um, uh, for-profit firms that that were sued or went out of business because of what were perceived as uh, poor, poor or illegal practices. So uh, there's a, a, a sort of rifle shot of uh, a court-related student um, debt relief that, that the administration has taken. And um, that in and of itself, I think, is, is not nearly as objectionable. Uh, as these sort of broad promises to just relieve uh, student debt for, for everybody for, for no apparent reason. There's an interim step that's worth watching. So there, there is a, um, 
uh, a rule coming out of the Department of Education. It's, it's under comment right now, known as the borrower defense rule. And the borrower defense rule basically says, look, I was misled, as those who went to IT tech might claim, uh, about what education I would receive, the quality of the instruction uh, when I borrowed this money. And as a result, I'm not going to have to pay it back because of the, the, the false claims made. And that's been adjudicated either on a case-by-case -case basis, people take it into court, or ITT tech, class action suit, uh, you find out the, that uh, the claims were false. Um, the borrower defense rule coming out of the Department of Education would basically um, say, well, if there was any misleading statement ever made by the institution to anybody in any circumstance, then any student will automatically be qualifying for borrower's defense. So it's just very sweeping uh, um, uh, ability to, to wipe out the debt. That's really worth watching because it, you can imagine, you know, simple misrepresentations like, well, we expect to be number two in the U.S. News and World Report uh, rankings, and they come in number three. Okay, is that, does that merit wiping out the, the student debt? I don't think so, but you could interpret the rule as saying that that's not a misleading statement by a college official. And it goes on from there. Like, you know, every football coach is going to say this is the finest uh, public institution uh, in the land. And, and is that a, a misrepresentation of the university of whatever, name your state? Um, so... I worry about this borrower defense rule being tailored largely to 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 make it really easy to forgive large swaths of, of student loans uh, instead of being a, a genuine uh, place to relieve those who were who were really misled in a, in a, a legal and, and substantive way. So lots going on on the student loan front. You know, there currently no one's paying their student loans. You know, we have this moratorium on repayments that, that uh, ends at the end of August. We have to make a decision whether they extend that again or not. Um, there are still claims that there will be large scale by presidential order student debt relief. Uh, all of this, you know, I continue to be baffled by the, this sort of deep urge to just take these contracts that people signed willingly, knowingly, and benefited from and, and just toss them. I don't, I, it's not something I support. Well, let's look ahead to the, uh, to the feds, the Federal Reserve's next meeting. Between now and then, we'll get another CPI report. Um, so we'll get more information. With what we know now, what do you expect? I expect a 75-point uh, increase, uh, another sort of firm message being sent that we need to fight inflation. And I am out of step with uh, Wall Street in particular. So if you um, looked at the TV yesterday, you can uh, take a look from interest rate futures and, and basically infer what the, the, quote, market is thinking about uh, you know, the interest rate increase. Is it going to be 50 basis points or 75? Uh, and and the, the inference is about a 40% chance of a 75-point basis. Like, I think that's crazy. Um, here's why. The Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the PCE price index, uh, we, got, we get later than most. We get the next one on August 26th. Um, in June, it accelerated. Inflation went up, not down. And so the most recent reading in their preferred measure showed no progress, indeed, indeed an absence of, of success on, on the inflation front. The CPI uh, report that came out in July, everyone I think is spiking the football prematurely. It is true that gasoline prices fell substantially, and this brought the top line inflation down to zero for the month of July. Put that aside, that is good news, don't want to dismiss that, but put that aside, and what you see is core inflation, non-food, non-energy, uh, 
no change, 5.9% year over year, just, just as in June, so no, no progress. Shelter, which you and I have talked about a lot over the past couple of months, went up from 5.6 to 5.7. It continues to accelerate, no sign of it peaking or even uh, coming close to diminishing. And so that that's not uh, like a worse inflation report, but that's not really progress in my view. And the Fed has said they are going to wait until they see several months of decline in actual inflation before they rethink the, the pace of their rate increases. To me, there's no reason to rethink. I mean, the, the data are saying, you know, we have a problem still, and so we should continue to, to address it. The only thing that changes that view is if next week on the 26th, the PC index comes out and shows just a U-turn of some dramatic sort, maybe they go 50. But, but given what we know now, I don't see how you could come to any other conclusion than 75. And, you know, and look at the labor market, 500,000 jobs. I mean, that's that's hardly a sign of weakness. I mean, so it seems to me they're in the position to do 75. They have a need to do 75 and they'll do 75. So on that note, let's talk about the state of the economy. We'll end here, lend on the state of the economy. Um, the White House, as you mentioned, was hailing the last CPI report as a major victory. Um, so everyone can exhale in their mind now. How do you read that report? How do you read the state of the economy right now? Well, as, as I just mentioned, I don't read that report as, as a victory of any sort. Um, you know, global oil, oil prices are, are off considerably in the past six weeks, um, probably because China's in a recession. No one's going to admit that, but I think China's in a recession. Uh, the party Congress is coming up this fall. President Xi doesn't want the, the economy to be in a recession. They're going to do everything they can to, to stimulate the Chinese economy. If it comes back online, global oil prices go right back up. Gasoline prices will go right back up. That temporary victory will disappear. And we better make real progress on the underlying core non-food, non-energy inflation to have a genuine victory. So I take that, that whole report with a grain of salt for the moment. The U.S. economy, you know, was pronounced dead with the uh, two consecutive quarters of day of GDP growth. Uh, but it's not really dead. I, this is like Princess Bride. It's not really dead. We can, we can revive uh, the U.S. economy. And, and the reports since then have actually been very solid. We've got retail sales yesterday, solid spending by the, the household sector. Um, we've got the Philly Fed's uh, index of manufacturing activity was supposed to show a decline. It showed a strong positive. You know, we've gotten good reports on the strength of the U.S. economy in the labor market and then also in the goods markets, you know, some spending reports. So, uh, I certainly didn't think the U.S. was in recession in the first quarter. I thought that GDP report was just full of anomalies. The second quarter one was weaker. There is no question. Uh, the Fed's trying to make things weaker, so that's not shocking. Uh, but I don't think negative was the right bottom line. And so in the third quarter, I expect positive, slower yet, solid uh, growth in the economy. And, you know, if the Fed goes 75 and we still haven't seen much progress in inflation, it's, gonna, gonna, it's going to keep going. And we know historically that because it has to do that, it does do that. It, it's likely that we won't get a soft landing. There'll be a recession late this year, early next year. I, I think that's that's the the sort of basic forecast most people have in their heads at this point. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, U, U.S. Uh, retail spending numbers in the housing in this week's housing market index report. Give us a sense of how those reports, um, what they say about the economy, a little bit more. So the, the housing reports, um, you know, are, are just like uh, a, a, a list of devastation. Existing home sales down 20% from last year. New, you know, all, all of the uh, housing starts, housing permits, all this stuff is down. Mortgage demand is down. 
none of this is is shocking. Um, you know, last year was an extraordinarily hot housing market, extraordinarily high sales of new and existing homes, extraordinary low inventory, high price increases. And, you know, what the Fed is doing will cool the housing sector even more than the rest of the economy, because when rates go up, mortgage rates go up. Everyone faces that. But they're also trimming their balance sheet, which means they are uh, getting rid of $35 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities. So they are uh, essentially pulling $35 billion a month of mortgage capital out of the economy. Um, th that's a real shift from pushing $30 billion in. And that swing of $65 billion is about a quarter to a fifth of, of typical mortgage finance. So they are leaning on, on the housing uh, sector more than the other sectors. And, and it's showing. And so um, I see that. And it, I'm not panicked by it because there's no way if you can avoid it. We're going to have a very tough housing market for the next 18 months, two years. Um, so that's not, for me, a cause for alarm. That's This is what the Fed needs to do, and it's, and it's doing it. Um, the retail sales, like no one wants the, the U.S. consumer to give up the ghost and call it off. If that, That's a really a recipe for a recession. Uh, retail sales, you know, were very solid. And um, the, to the extent that there were declines, it was in the, the dollars spent on gasoline and and you know good right we want the dollars to be less but they're still buying the the actual quantities of gasoline so i i don't really i don't see anything that's a, a big red flag that says that we are on the edge of the recession now uh, we haven't seen the sharp jump in unemployment claims we've seen some modest increases that we're keeping an eye on but nothing jumps out uh, instead we get you know month after month of sort of mixed data that that are probably what you're going to get is the Fed cools the economy. It doesn't do it uniformly. It sort of comes in in different places. And we're going to see these mixed reports until at some point, you know, you see inflation turn down and then they can they can moderate the, the rate increases in the, in the portfolio cuts. Yeah, I mean, on the housing side, it seems like, as you've uh, mentioned, I think we've talked about this many times that as they lean on that more and more, that means also people don't realize they don't, you know, buy new appliances, they don't buy the materials to build these houses and things like that. Um, and then on the retail side, is it is it still the case that that we have high savings rates so that people are still able to buy? No, that's not part of it. No, the 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 so the saving out of current income has come back to sort of pretty normal, if not a little below normal rates. Uh, so so people might have an, a large amount of money in their bank account. So for example, Bank of America at a recent conference reported that you know their their typical personal checking account person who doesn't appear to be particularly affluent usually has say three thousand dollars in their account. They now have thirteen thousand dollars in their account. Their view is that. The U.S. consumer has a lot of leftover money from the stimulus checks and things like that, and that that's sustaining the spending. Uh, despite the inflation, despite uh, everything that's going on, they have the capacity to spend, and they are. Um, but it's not out of their current income. They're, they're using up this past savings to, to make it happen. One final question for you. We're weeks away from football season. Uh, are you ready? I'm ready. The question is, are the Pittsburgh Steelers? And, uh, <laughs> Who's your quarterback going to be? Uh, yes, we are going to have a quarterback. There's no <laughs> question about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's it's a you know, it's a wonder for people who don't follow this. You know, we've got Mason Rudolph, who's been a long time backup and is there, and, and now with Roethlisberger on, they're going to give him a shot at the job. Uh, they got Mitch Trubisky, who they signed after having been a 
first round pick for the Bears a while back. And and then they took in the first round Kenny Pickett from University of History, the fans favorite. So they have these three players and in training camp, they have thus far not any of them distinguished themselves as uh, clearly head and shoulders above the others. They played the first preseason game and they all performed basically exactly the same. They, you know, each threw a touchdown pass, no one threw an interception, all had high quarterback ratings. So nothing was learned about who's the best. Um, maybe they have three good quarterbacks. Maybe they have three bad quarterbacks. Maybe we don't know. I think we're in the no, no camp, to be honest. <laughs> we're in a sim. I mean, my Patriots are in a similar situation where we don't know who the offensive coordinator is, who's going to be calling the plays. And I love every time a reporter asks Belichick about this and he gives the same response, which is no response. So <laughs> I cannot wait to see how that plays out. All right, Doug, thank you for joining us today um, and have a good week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.